We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. As our world becomes more and more high-tech, it creates both pluses and minuses for law enforcement. Cyber-savvy criminals are increasingly sophisticated. Police have more and more digital tools they can use for investigations. In 2002, the St. Louis Regional Computer Crimes Education and Enforcement Group was established. Comprised of regional police detectives, it's been described as something of a major case squad for high-tech crimes. I sat down yesterday to talk about this 21st century approach to law enforcement with Detective Corporal Ken Nix. He's a 40-year veteran of the Clayton Police Department and the founder of the Computer Crimes Education and Enforcement Group. I asked Nix about the mission of the group. It was mainly created because I was part of the major case squad, and we had some incidents where computers or media were seized, and there was really no entity that could address it. So what I thought is while I was at one of the major case retrainings, I saw an entity out of Illinois that was similar to what I'm doing now, and we needed something to help law enforcement to address any type of digital forensics immediately instead of having to wait six, seven, eight months. And that's what our goal is, is to help law enforcement look at stuff and move it forward to get it to the prosecution so we can establish the finality of the case. Well, things have changed a little bit since 2002. Yes, they have. Yeah. In, in what ways? I mean, what, what were you dealing with? What kinds of crimes were you dealing with then? And, and what are you dealing with now? When our SEG was first started, and that's Regional Computer Crime Education Enforcement Group, our main goal is we were partnering with ICAC, the Crimes Against Children's Unit, and the majority of our cases were addressing child crimes. Back then, about 85% of all incidents we handled were child exploitation, child pornography, uh, incidents such as that. And as it's progressed through time, uh, most recently now, it's maybe 50% of the forensics that we perform are child stuff. The rest of it is related to murders, fraud, hacking, intrusions, thefts. So the agencies are understanding that digital forensics can help them more in the field of all of their investigations, not just child crimes. Specify, if you would, exactly what digital forensics means. A digital forensics has taken an item that someone utilizes and has the capability of storing information. And what we do is we will take those items such as a computer, a cell phone, or media, and pull the information off using forensic sound uh, tools to create a exact duplicate and work off of that to identify the contents of it. And this is mainly to help law enforcement either identify where they want to go with the case or to prove the case happened or prove it didn't happen. And that helps them in the prosecution of the incident. The first thing that comes to my mind uh, concerning a recent case, and I know you weren't involved in this, but maybe it'll help people understand what we're talking about here, was during this uh, whole issue of uh, of former Governor Greitens and the cell phone and the was there a photograph at one time on the phone? Is this the kind of thing we're talking about? Because there were attempts to try to retrieve a photograph from a phone. Yes, uh, we do handle incidents such as that. And what we're finding out now, especially with, when we're assisting the major case squad, and they're one of our biggest entities that we work with, because we're, we're in a pattern similar to them is how we're created. 
but they will see cell phones during the incident of their crime. So bring them to us, and then we will look at each item, pull the extraction off of it, provide a report to them so that they can look at it. And there may be stuff on there that is deleted. There may not be. Uh, it depends on how it was stored and what applications were used. But a lot of times if there's text messages, they want to see who they're communicating with. Depending on how the forensics is done, we may be able to recover deleted items to help them in their investigations. I was under the impression that once something was put on one of these devices, and PCs in, in particular, that it's always there somewhere. It can be always there. It all depends on once it's deleted, if the area that is deleted is unallocated space, if that area is needed to be used to store more data, it may be overwritten. We've we recovered partial stuff before where we recovered a partial video or a partial picture because part of it was overwritten by the needing of the item to utilize the space. Can you give me an example? You mentioned early on the kinds of cases you were dealing with, but can you, can you give me a, a pretty good example of a case maybe you've worked on recently and how that, uh, how that evolved? Uh, we've had some of them where I think one of our better cases is where we had an inc- incident in New Jersey where the New Jersey Police Department contacted one of our individuals who works mobile devices. Uh, they had a little girl, a 15-year-old, that was found dead. And what they wanted to do was they found, through their investigation through social media, they found her iPod that was submerged in water. They were unable to get it going, so our guy worked with them, brought it back to our lab in St. Louis, and was able to put it back together and rebuild it so that he could pull the information off of it. They were able to utilize the information he recovered to work the case and identify the individuals mm-hmm. and move forward for a prosecution and subsequent guilty verdicts. How does that work as evidence? Is it admissible? Uh, any issues with regard to uh, to using it as evidence? No, as long as we follow the proper protocol, yeah. uh, it's just like any other item. It's just like an evidence with a gun. When the, when the agency sees it, they document it with an evidence form. Then they transfer it to us, making their requests. We sign the evidence form showing we receive it. And then through our protocols, we identify what methods we used, how we did the extraction, and then how we looked at it. And then all the information that we recovered, we put that into a report to provide to them so that they can look at it, see what's in the report, and then utilize that for their investigation or prosecution. How has law changed over the years with regard to dealing with this digital world? The law, um, there was a lot of changes that needed to be done. When I first started this in 2000, 2002, there was really not much to address the digital field uh, or even electronic field. Uh, they were still going like the old telephone system. And finally, they're starting to move up into the world, especially with like the harassment laws, because it was kind of hard to you know, put something shadowy out there when you only had telephones. But now that you have the media and you have the Internet, it's easy to put fake information out there to go after people. And when law enforcement <clears throat> seizes something, we look at the items to try and show who really did it or if there's a possibility to identify where it came from. Is there any difficulty in, in seizing this, uh, th- these things, these phones and, and PCs and tablets and that sort of thing? The, the difficulty is if you follow the same protocol where you need to get a search warrant or you need to get a consent and then verify what you're seizing. The thing is, when you seize it, what type of data is on there? Plus, is it secured? Is it locked down, passcode protected, or even encrypted? If they don't get a password, 
we have to try and figure out how to crack it or how to get into it to look at it. Well, how do you do that? There are certain tools that we have where we can use a brute force to try and crack an encrypted item, or we may have some other tools that can bypass passcodes and then pull that off. And that's, we've been kind of lucky where we're being able to move around to, a, to identify maybe over half of the items. Hmm. But still, it's pretty hard. The, the companies creating these still work hard to make it so that they're not crackable, but we try and work the other way so we can try and get into these and give law enforcement what they need. Are there privacy issues that you have to deal with? I mean, some of the stuff you look at might have information on it that is, is a private, personal, what have you. Privacy issues kind of, you know, is it workforce documents? Is it items that we have to go to the prosecutor and talk with them? Can we look at this? Can we give this product out? And that's, we work very close with the prosecutors, and we work close with, with law enforcement in trying to detail what we can and cannot do. Is, is law catching up to what you're doing? I mean, we talk a lot about the Internet and things people are doing on it uh, in which there are some suspect in terms of legality, but the law hasn't been written yet about some of these things. They're slowly addressing it. There are some laws that address like harassment, items such as that. But, you know, we're still behind a curve a little bit on can we force someone to give a passcode? Can we yeah. force someone to open it up? There are laws that are in the appeals court, like making an individual give their thumbprint on a phone uh, to unlock it. Or some other courts throughout the country, and it all depends on where you're at, forcing the individual to give a passcode. But we have to keep up with that on where we're getting our cases from. What does the law in that region apply, and how can we utilize it? There has to be, just like everything else, there has to be probable cause, I suppose, to get at some of this equipment. Yes. All right. How does that work? When we accept a case, the way it works with us is the agency will seize the items. They'll contact our unit, make an arrangement to bring it in. And once they bring it in, the most important things that we ask for is a search warrant. And we look at the search warrant and say, does the search warrant allow us to look at it? So the probable cause was determined by the prosecutors. If they get a search warrant through the court, we're good to look at it. Now, on a consent, we look at the consent and verify that the consent is valid and that we can look at it, and it's a proper person given the consent. Well, let me uh, try an example this way, a hypothetical. You, uh, there's a, a raid on a house that's a, a drug house. You go in and you make a couple of arrests and you seize some evidence, and there is a cell phone in there. Can you take the cell phone as well, or do you have to have a specifically mentioned in a warrant of some sort? The individuals, depending on how the warrant is written, if the warrant says seize all items, they can seize it. But a lot of times what most law enforcement agencies will do is They'll have a prosecutor they can contact, and they'll say, we got this cell phone. Can we take it? And if we take it, what do we got to do to get the proper search authority to have someone look at it? Mm -hmm. And we review those very good. Uh, That's one of the items that we look at because we never want to do forensics on an item and have it thrown out. You mentioned a little while ago that uh, you, you assisted on a case in New Jersey. Uh, that that's uh, you know a thousand miles from here. How is the how has it happened that this local uh, group is working with uh, other states? A lot of our individuals are receiving training throughout the country, and some of our guys are known through other various aspects. And the individual that worked on this phone was known by individuals from New Jersey because he was helping teach a class on f- mobile forensics and attended some classes. So they remembered his name and said call this guy, uh, is Detective Randy Herenick from Hazelwood. And 
they knew him, they contacted him, and we were able to help him out. And it, it was a pretty significant case. What about helping out uh, other jurisdictions in this area? You mentioned the major case squad. We know how that works with the various agencies coming together. Uh, how does it work here in, in this region and how extensive is it? RSIG is a law enforcement entity. We're like a task force, but we're also a corporation registered with the state of Missouri, a 501c3 nonprofit, because we're not funded normally like that. So what RSIG does is we provide law enforcement assistance to any entity on the eastern side of Missouri. Uh, one of the things we get is our funding is through a grant from the state cybercrime unit. So we have two individuals that's funded that way. Mm-hmm. So anybody that has a child crime, they can just bring it in, we'll handle it, and we take care of it. Uh, but if it's regular crime, normally we have a subscription where individual agencies will subscribe, they'll bring it in, and then we perform the cases for it and give it back. Do, do you belong to a, a, a particular jurisdiction? I mean, are you part of the Clayton Police Department, for instance? I am part of I am a Clayton officer. I've been with Clayton for 40 years. Uh, but each individual in our unit is from different agencies. We have a Clayton officer, a Hazelwood, St. Louis County, Webster Groves, and Shrewsbury. But we are a total separate entity. We are an autonomous entity registered with the state and also registered with Department of Justice with our own original number. Uh, so we're our own entity, but we provide assistance to the region. Well, do these uh, various uh, municipalities that might use your service, do they pay you for it, or how is it funded? Are you using tax money? Initially, uh, we were funded through various working with federal entities and that, but we don't receive any federal funding or state funding to keep our entity operating. So what we had to do in the last couple of years is we get X amount of dollars from state grants, and then we get money through what we call subscriber fees. Agencies pays us X amount of dollars per year to do unlimited services. So you're, you do have funding issues, as I understand it. That's something that uh, you need to address. Yes. How so? What we're looking for is trying to figure a means to bring in funds to keep our entity operating. Uh, we feel we provide a very valuable service. We're not the only forensic unit in town. St. Louis County has their unit. St. Charles County has a unit, and St. Louis City has theirs. But we're looking as being a separate entity that provides services to the region, to all the municipalities that don't have the funds or the personnel available to provide forensics. We're looking to figure a way to obtain funding through either private donations, since we are a 501c3, to keep our entity operating and provide the services that not only law enforcement needs, but the public needs. We address their situation to help law enforcement move forward for any prosecuting of cases. Are you only approached by law enforcement uh, organizations, or can private citizens come to you? We're a law enforcement entity. Yeah. Uh, we we handle cases for federal, state, and local entities. We do cases for almost every municipality and region. We handle cases for several federal entities as well. What do you need this money for? I mean, what do you spend it on? The individuals that work here work at our lab. We have to reimburse their agencies their salary and benefits, and that's in order to keep them full-time at our lab. People wonder why the agencies just don't donate it, but it would be hard for, let's say, Clayton to donate a person full-time while other agencies are getting the service for free. What about equipment? I mean, you, you talk about the tools that you need to, uh, to do your work. With the specialty items that we utilize, license fees and upgrade fees, 
range about 100, 150,000 a year just to keep those programs operating so we could provide the forensics needed for the region. Uh, describe some of that equipment, if you would. What are we talking about? Computers? Computers, but the license fees are for specialized equipment like NCASE, FTK, Celebrite. All of those items will do a forensic analysis of the special tools, say, you're looking at a cell phone, so we use Celebrite to look at that. Well, we need the license fees to keep that going and then to address all the new phones that are coming out because they keep upgrading. We need to keep upgrading. The phone has to be the big deal. I mean, everybody's got them, and uh, I, I suspect that that's what you're working with more often than not. Probably over 50 percent of our cases involve phones now. Right. One of the interesting things about phones is the GPS aspect, and I'm sure that that is something that uh, you can make pretty good use of, and there have been some court cases uh, involving use of the GPS. We had a, a really significant case involving a GPS where an individual was accused of a sexual assault, and they seized his phone, they brought it to us to look at, and I was able to do the analysis on it pulling off the information, not only the video where it was recorded of the actual assault occurring with a minor, but I was able to look at the specific video in question and show the exact date and time and the longitude latitude of where the video was taken. So it put the crime in a specific location, and when they tried to dispute it or, say, question it, I said, this is where it occurred exactly, and verified the victim's statement. What about hacking? It's a big deal these days. Uh, there are businesses that are worried about it. Are you into that at all? Yes. We presented at a uh, cybersecurity summit with DPI, uh, Digital Partners Incorporated, and we were there to talk about what the response and what law enforcement can do to help corporations when they're either hacked or they're hit with certain items such as ransomware or malware that's going to disrupt their company. And, you know, you've been around, as you said, for 40 years with the Clayton Police Department. How did you get into this? I was not computer savvy. Uh, I was in a detective bureau with Clayton when I had an incident that involved a computer, and that's how this started. I was seeking someone to help me do the forensics, and it was going to take a significant amount of time to get it looked at. So that is whenever I saw the unit in Illinois and decided that we needed to have a unit in Missouri. And I learned from there to understand computers and surround myself with a perfect batch of individuals that understand computers and create this unit that provides a significant help to the region. And you say there are other units in and around the area here. How do you work with them? We work hand-in-hand hand with them. We have something they need, they'll call us. If they have something we need, we contact them. Not one unit has everything. You know, the, one of the things that uh, occurs to me is the fact that uh, as you and yours and uh, your fellows become more sophisticated, the bad guys are more sophisticated too. So I guess there's, there's a question of balance here, maintaining that balance throughout. We're always kind of like on the lower curve trying to catch up with them. Yeah. We're pretty lucky, and a lot of the other forensic units are, where you have a group of individuals that have an initiative that want to learn it, want to move forward, and don't like to lose. We're not fighting a losing battle yet, are we? No, we're not fighting a losing battle. And we've been pretty lucky. Uh, a lot of the cases that we go through, we've been able to do a decent job and, and get a lot of convictions. How vulnerable are we uh, in this world of uh, this digital world? It's not as much being vulnerable as it is understanding what's out there. With the world the way it is, with the access to the Internet and with the emails and, and all of the instant messages stuff in that, people 
sometimes don't pay attention to what they're looking at, and they will open items that will just destroy their system. That's where the ransomware, the malware comes in. Mm. So we just need to get people to understand it and become a little better, obtain better knowledge as to what's out there, why you shouldn't do certain things, and especially for, for companies. Yeah. The best advice, I guess, you're saying is just be careful. Don't take anything for granted. Be careful. Be knowledgeable. And if you're in a company, let your IT people uh, keep up with them to understand what's going on in the world. Detective Corporal Ken Nix, the founder of the Computer Crimes Education and Enforcement Group. We have a link to the RCCEEG website at stlpublicradio.org. The organization also operates a Citizens Academy. That's it from us for today. This is St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWNU.